Hello and welcome everyone to KSQD Santa Cruz at 90.7 FM. I'm Jacob Sheckman and you're listening to a special edition of our show, What To Be, where typically we are interviewing inspiring people to highlight their careers. Now I mentioned this is a special edition because we have our first returning guest, actually, Dr. Ginger Charles out of Cabrillo College. I am speaking with her today to hopefully answer some questions that will help bring about actual change that we need in the world. And Dr. Charles, if you don't mind, I'm just going to take a, a few minutes to to explain where I'm coming from because I, I've I've never I've never stood up on any kind of boxer platform to to speak out about anything. Um, and you know, I I I came to this realization that. I have been a part of the problem. You know, my support is everywhere from for the, those that I love and 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 people in general, but I've never actually done anything and I I had a a conversation with a close friend of mine recently that you know, I realized not until this year that I wasn't really, you know, I had heard things but I wasn't listening. It wasn't until I had seen the 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 shooting of Ahmad Arbery. I watched that video and it you know like many others i'm sure it turned my stomach upside down and i i had no idea what what to do i i think of all my friends that have to deal with this sort of junk daily and things that i i i never consider i also had this strange experience in reforming my own identity a bit I, and to explain what i mean i, I i'm i'm a mexican american person I have a brown Hispanic mother and a white Jewish father. So I guess I'm half white, half brown, and I'm not really sure what that means, but that's pretty much what I've always told myself. But the events taking place all over the country and the world now have made me rethink my own identity. I've reflected on my own experiences in life and especially my own interactions with law enforcement. Interactions my parents will certainly be asking about after this because I never had to call home. And I never had to call home because I was privileged with the opportunity to be polite. I was privileged with the opportunity to show that I'm a normal human being who deserves basic respect. And thinking about this, I, it made me remember how a few years ago when I moved to Mississippi from a largely Hispanic community, Watsonville in California, I moved to Mississippi and I remember thinking to myself, I wonder what it's going to be like because I'm not white, right? And by not white, again, I just meant half white, half brown, but to me that's not white. I, I thought I don't look white, but then this crazy year happens and I, I reflected and I don't, I, I am white. Which is is weird. It's really I know this maybe sounds strange. It's definitely weird to me, but I'm pretty sure I'm white. And I say that only because of again the interactions that I've experienced with 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 police officers or or, or in areas that I maybe didn't expect uh or maybe wouldn't expect people who are not white to have a good time. I, I don't know how else to put it. But I was aware, I thought, of most of my privileges, but clearly there were more that I didn't see. And so now that I've had this opportunity to reflect and I have this platform, I want to take this opportunity to actually do something and, and provide answers and 
continue trying to understand because I'm not going to say I understand everything that's going on. I'm not going to say I've heard everything. I'm listening now. I'm paying attention now and I'm trying to do something now. So today I am excited to speak with Dr. Ginger Charles. She was recently on uh, Minneapolis Public Radio, NPR News, on the day that former officer Derek Chauvin was taken into custody. And she's already provided invaluable insight on the perspectives of things that are happening now. Dr. Charles spent, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, 27 years in law enforcement During that time, she earned both her master's and PhD in health psychology. And um, if I understood correctly, you were studying the interactions of police officers with the people around them, or maybe you can elaborate further. So my research was really on on the health of police officers, and my specific study was in regards to uh, how spirituality is incorporated in police work, because sometimes that's the root of the, the cause or the cure. And it has branched into the health of the culture, which extends then to the community. So that's where I'm at now and looking at police culture and how unhealthy it is right now. And Dr. Charles also is the author of a book, Police Pursuit of the Common Good. And I'd actually just like to take a minute to read the the first paragraph of the preface in this book. And these are, when I began to write this book, I wondered about what it would say to my peers in law enforcement, to other communities, to families and friends. On a larger scale, could this book help us work toward a resolution in our police organizations and marginalized communities? So how will I write this book? I know this, I will make some angry, but our anger can help us move in new directions of growth and change. And I, I really appreciated that, that first paragraph because it told me what I was in for for, for the rest of, of your book, Dr. Charles. And we're all angry right now. I, I've heard it from you, you're angry. And I guess I appreciated the mention of that word in this book, and especially uh, in new directions of growth and change, because something, many things have to change right now for, for us to continue to heal as a unified community. And so I wanted to pick your brain on, I suppose, a couple of, of topics that we'll break down further. What first piqued my interest was what happened after George Floyd's death? And then came the, the, the protests in Minneapolis to, regarding police violence, specifically against African-American communities. But since then, we've seen it against everybody. It seems like... I am trying to understand why, from, from my own perspective, and it seems others, that many of these protests, violent or not, are being met with violence. So... I guess a more specific question now is what seems to have caused this to to take off into further violence since the very first protest in Minneapolis? So first, let me say that your opening statement about where you're at in regards to this is absolutely brilliant and perfect. And it is what I would categorize as the change in the world. That is what people are going to need to do is truly reflect on who they are and where they're at right now um, and asking those questions. So as far as what happened with uh, the killing of George Floyd, this particular event, as well as Ahmaud Arbery, and then Breonna Taylor, those events we actually saw from beginning to end. If you go back to Eric Garner, who was uh, who died at the chokehold with the New York police, that was only a snapshot of the event. And so this one, we see the the very start of it all the way through to the end, which 
causes us to say, there's no other way we can call this an accident or he added to the event or whatever. And so that, that brings in the outrage. And then you start to see a change with folks that have a, maybe white or uh, a different stance, taking a look at that and saying, I can't deny this anymore. And so I have to do something about it. I also think that we are given opportunities in order to fix things through history. We had this particular moment in 1960 to take a look at racism and we started to get it done and then it went under. We've seen it kind of peak and, uh, and go under and now it's risen again and it has steadily risen since you know probably 2012, maybe 2009. And if we don't get it right, it will get worse the next time it comes up. So it is so particularly powerful that we deal with it now. And I think people are feeling that. I think they understand that, that this, this cannot go on. It will tear us all apart. Yes, I, I, absolutely. It, it, something does need to be done. Can you talk about some of the shortcomings that you've seen in our police organizations that may be leading to such seemingly large numbers of police officers responding with such great violence in these past couple of weeks? Yeah, I'll give you two different reasons. So think about this. In the United States, we probably have 900,000 law enforcement officers uh, protecting and serving. There's a very small portion, if you look at the scale of this event, that are actually inflicting this horrific damage. However, that very small portion affects the entire culture of the 900,000. So you have many, many, thousands and thousands of police officers that are doing very good work. I consider uh, that I did good work while I was in it too. And yet that culture was, was still there. So what happens with that particular culture is it encourages secrecy. It encourages loyalty. It encourages that you watch each other's back. And so when you look at even the event with George Floyd and you had two officers that had been on four days and the one that was sitting on his legs saying to Siobhan, I don't think we should be doing this. Let's roll him over. And Derek saying, no, we're gonna keep him right here. And you, you see the fact that here's an officer that knew that this was inappropriate. And yet he succumbed to an older officer deciding that they were gonna commit one of the worst acts they could possibly commit. And then being you know, carried down the path along with him for this horrific event. So that, that's the clearest demonstration as far as uh, that group think and that desire, that passion to belong to something and disregard who we are, who we actually are in the world and just to follow the, the crowd. So that's one reason. The second one is we forget sometimes that there is a human being behind that badge. And so you have many people out in the world that are suffering from, they may be sick with the virus, they may have anxiety or depression or addiction issues or other issues. And yet you also have them within the police culture. You have police officers that are in a job and feeling very defensive. They don't have the training and they are sick and anxious and depressed. And so you have people who are sick in a culture with a badge and a gun 
meeting folks in crisis who are sick and there's really no other, I mean, I'm really surprised that there's not more violence, quite frankly. So it's a very sick culture that needs some work too. We need to take care of our police officers and help them through this as well, because you know anybody who's sick does not perform correctly. Mm-hmm. And so they'll take that out on somebody else. And so that's another reason for the violence. In your book, you talked about implementation of computer statistics and transition of police organizations going into a business model. You, you mentioned it, it, it messed with veteran police officers, it changed schedules, it led people to be more irritable, and it, it changed the focus of the organization to be a, a numbers and fear-based. Can you elaborate on what that meant and can make a comp- is I was wondering as I was reading it, how many of our police organizations nationally are now run by business model? I would say probably a good portion of them are using that particular model. And in law enforcement, um, it's very ego-driven. Uh, and so you have many leaders that try and make a name for themselves as they rise through the ranks. And, you know, th- this is the latest and greatest thing, and this is what we're going to do. So you have that bit of a mind game. But then you also have a community that may say, we need this, more of this in our, in our community. And they may get things like addiction and homeless and mental health issues and uh, juvenile issues that, that they want the police now to deal with. And then you don't have, you get funded for that, but you don't have police officers that actually really know how to, how to handle that. So you put a gun in their hand and then everything that, the, everybody that you meet becomes a nail and you're the hammer. So that's another problem. So when we look at people saying we want to de- defund the police, I think that's, it's not necessarily a bad idea. The issue becomes who's going to take responsibility for the homeless, mental illness, domestic violence, all of those social problems that ended up with police and we were funded for that. And now you're going to take it away. You need to make sure that there's a responsibility for the folks that are gonna take that over and that that money doesn't get pilfered someplace else in the business world. Otherwise it will come back to the police and there won't be police or funding in order to handle that. So when we talk about defunding, I can't say that that's necessarily a bad idea or a good idea. I just think that we need to have really clear conversations. With the business model, we want numbers about how many we arrest and how well we're doing. And we miss that really important qualitative perspective of what we're doing in the world. And that's why I focused on qualitative research throughout my my academic career. There's a richness that we miss just by, by collecting numbers. So I'm not saying we need to get rid of the numbers, but we need to pull in that anecdotal, you know, how are you doing with this? Or how is this affecting you? Or why should we be doing this this way? Maybe we need to think about it in another way. And typically a business model doesn't do that. The only time a business model will change is when they're failing. And then what's the point? I mean, with a business model, you should be making money. As a police officer, you shouldn't be making money. (laughs) You should be protecting and serving. And so I think that gets lost in the message when you are very focused on strictly numbers.
Just a reminder for all of those tuning in now, my name's Jacob Sheckman and you're listening to What To Be. I'm speaking with Dr. Ginger Charles, a former police sergeant and current research psychologist focusing on the behavior and health of police officers. So I've got a, a couple questions now. I think the first one I want to ask is who, you, you mentioned, um, you know, who, if, if defunding the police occurs, who handles some of the stuff they were, they were supposed to handle, right? People with mental health issues and so on. Who handled it before it was the police officer's responsibility? Well, you had, uh, you had, with mental health, we look at that, most folks were institutionalized and then we deinstitutionalized folks and then they ended up on the street and there was nothing. So where did that money go? And then there was nothing in support of that. So then you have homeless and you have mentally ill on the street and then you have officers that have really no training in how to deal with that. But then we think, okay, well, you need to deal with that police officers. So we push money toward that particular system and then you have teams that start up with homelessness but you may not have the training in order to really effectively do that or officers that are really caring enough to do that but that's just a stopgap you know you have to think about how do we actually end homelessness or correct it it doesn't happen in the police department that's only a stopgap so you said you said it yourself that as a business model is for a, as a for profit as a police officer, as you've written, it's to protect and and serve, right? You're you're a, a service member of the community, and profit isn't necessarily the goal. You're just your job is to protect. So why why did the transition to the business model happen so widely in the first place? What was was the goal for profit, or what did they think that somehow this was going to be better for police organizations to protect? I think, again, you have some leaders, police leaders who feel like I want to make my mark in the world. And so I'm going to try this new model. Or you'll see a lot of times the trends that will float from the east to the west or even from continent to continent to, to you know, wow, this looks pretty good. Uh, I guess the clearest example is when I interviewed a police chief constable from the UK. And he said to me, he said, Ginger, you guys have no idea how to police. Well, I was a police officer at the time. And so I was just like, what? And then he said, you know, you have all these separate agencies and we have 16,000 law enforcement agencies across the United States. And you, we've done ComStat and we've done broken windows and we've done these other things. We go to the community and we ask, how do you want to be policed? Which is a brilliant question. And so you're, you're pulling it back into the, the community that you're serving about how do, we, how do we protect you? But as law enforcement, we don't wanna ask the question. We want to be the experts in telling somebody how we're going to protect you. Mm -hmm. And that's what has to shift. You wrote about that in, in your book and you, you brought that story home to, to your own police chief and they didn't wanna hear it at all. They didn't, they didn't wanna even listen to what you had to say. Correct. Well, uh, you know, who am I? Right. I'm, I'm police sergeant. Um, yeah, I'm educated, but I am in that police department underneath that particular chief. And so it is a very militaristic structure. It's one of the reasons why I thought it might be time to, to retire because if I want to affect change within a police department or for new police officers to go in, perhaps I need to be outside of a police department that doesn't quote unquote, own me, 
and then I'm freer to say, let's take a look at some of these larger issues. So it, I don't know if that was ego that they didn't want to hear it or if they thought it was a stupid idea. I never even got that far. But um, I can tell you that I really, really do believe anybody I've talked to, that's a very important question to be asking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would imagine. How, how would you like to be policed? That yeah. people, you, were, you mentioned police officers in England were walking around asking their citizens that very question. I, I now I guess let's talk a little bit about training. The training has come up a few times, and one thing um, that blew me away uh, in your in your text was I believe it was in I couldn't remember. I'm sorry if it was New York Police Department or New York State, in which officers are required four hours of communications training, and that's it. California has none. None whatsoever. Denver or Colorado has eight. So it varies. And so there's part of the problem. So if you're talking about you have uh, you have our federal government looking at, at police reform and you have 50 states and they all have a police or a, a peace officer standards and training board, a post board, usually run by retired police officers or somebody that's been a law enforcement officer. So that's a little bit biased. And we we look at communication and think, well, that's just not sexy. You know, we need to have those physical tools because those are the things that are going to get us killed. When in fact, I'm thinking almost every armed encounter will have some type of verbiage going on before that encounter happens. So there's some kind of communication that has to happen, like stop resisting, drop the gun, something like that. Well, the other thing is, is that nobody's actually looked at, or I should say very few have looked at, what does communication actually do for a police officer? It actually opens up their brain. It causes them to think a little bit clearer. They actually breathe when they, when they communicate. And perhaps they actually de-escalate. And so you're effectively saying, we're not going to require this, but we're going to require 80 hours with a handgun because that's more important. So we've already told the officer in a very unconscious way what's actually more important in their job. Not speaking, but the gun. It's just, at least right now, it seems so obvious that communication would be a huge thing, right? How many times have we seen an interaction, uh, uh, these videos are everywhere now, where someone, two people are, are yelling at each other and violence is brought in. Right now it's tear gas and rubber bullets or shields to a gut. Um what is the average education level of police officers and, and how much education is usually required to, to become a police officer? So in, in California, I really can't tell you how many require some type of a degree. I would say that college is preferred. Uh, there, there's not usually a statement that you need to have an AA or a BA uh, in Colorado, I happened to work for an agency where we required a four-year degree mm -hmm. and that we were one of four in that state that required one. So that's one area that we, we might look at as well as far as the education. I will tell you that my students that I'm teaching at Cabrillo, whether they like it or not, need to learn how to speak and need to learn how to write because those are really the most powerful weapons that they absolutely have in order to keep themselves and the, and the public safe. Now we are gonna run up against a situation that just recently happened in, in Santa Cruz with, unfortunately with the, the sergeant, where 
they're confronted with something armed and then there's no there's no way you can talk your way through that necessarily that's somebody with a different intent but for the most part a major portion of their day is going to be spent talking to somebody and trying to bring them down to get them to comply and so they have to learn how to talk in this day and age that's difficult when we have a lot of folks that are online that are in the social media that aren't uh, perfecting standing in front of somebody and talking or just finding out how somebody is on a face-to-face level. So that's a definite problem. When you're, when you're teaching your students how to, how to interact with people and how to talk, a difficult topic is always race. I, I, I for sure feel uncomfortable myself sometimes if I try and talk about it at all. So how would you, how would you suggest to any listeners and maybe how do you, how do you teach your students to, to be okay talking about difficult subjects of racism and racial injustice? I will tell you within my criminal justice courses, the first step that I have to go through, and I, and I can't really say this for any other instructors because they haven't had enough opportunity to observe them. But I would say for me, first building that trust with the, the group that they're going to be safe there, that they need to be able to share as much as they possibly can. And that's a little difficult. You know, I used to teach psychology. That's easier to do. So when you're talking about criminal justice, you already have that kind of closed mentality where they really don't want to share, but they do need to share. Then I am vulnerable. So I will share something. And as they see that it's safe to do so, then they'll start sharing. So some of the things they may share are the the multitude of times that they've been stopped as a Hispanic person in the Valley for nothing in, in their opinion. I don't have you know, reason to doubt them or, or, or to believe them or whatever, I'm just letting them speak to it. So then we can have a conversation about it too. So somebody might say, well, maybe you did this. No, I didn't do anything. And then they, we have a healthy conversation to be able to talk about, well, what is that? How did that make you feel? And so it may be a criminal justice course, but it's an opportunity actually to have that, the beginning of that, that conversation about race. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's very difficult and, you know, you need to make sure you're managing the emotions for those students too, that you're not hurting anybody, but it has to be brought up. And there's, that's the only way we're going to heal this is to be able to say, I don't know what that was like for you, but I want to know, please help me to know what that's like for you. I want to point out to, to, I want to point out to any of our listeners that this doesn't need to take place just in the classroom, whether you're, out at a park with your friends, you're skateboarding, you're having a beer, whatever. Talk about this. Talk. Do not be silent. Help each other understand. Now, I'm I uh, a lot of the thing the things that I have questions about are things that have happened just over the past couple of weeks, and I, I try I try and try and try to, especially when it comes to the origin of violence, to to be neutral and see. That it can come from from many different areas, but so far, a lot of violence that I see right now, uh, and we'll say in, in news media or online outlets, are are police violence, and uh, one that just really sticks out that just it it confuses me for many reasons is is the incident of the old old gentleman in Buffalo, and to quickly describe the situation, it seems like there was a line of police officers who were clearing an area. I'm not exactly sure, and they needed this person to move. And he was he was shoved and fell backwards, and there's an audible, loud smack on the ground from when he hits his head, and he's laying there bleeding. And the next 
bits, the next minute or so is confusing too. You see, it seems like one officer may have tried to help. Another may have brought him back because I don't know if he was just saying, you know, you got to hold your line. Can you talk to me about what you observed happening in that situation from your perspective as a former police officer? Can you tell me, is there anything I'm not seeing in this scenario? No, you know, it's unfortunate. We're just watching the video, so we don't know what's being said or how how things are interacting. But, you know, the bottom line is, is that as police officers were sworn or deputies were sworn to protect the Constitution, the First Amendment is the right of free speech and the ability to protest without inciting a riot. And so when you have a police officer that is confronting somebody or somebody is confronting them, there's a whole plethora of solutions that can go on before you push an elderly gentleman to the ground. Then let's say you make that mistake and you've pushed that person to the ground. There's innumerable options that you have in order to help that situation rather than make it worse. You see one start to to bend down to help and the other one pull him away. So the interesting thing about that is that, yes, you're right. It could be they need to hold the line. I understand that. I didn't see from the, that vantage point, that there was any pending attack coming that they needed to hold a line, but I may be mistaken. I would say that when you, when you train police and you have them in one mindset, you have shut off the most powerful part of their brain. All their, they're just like in automation. There's no higher level thinking. And so there can be no hope, compassion, empathy, creativity. There's nothing going on there other than I just have one mission. And you are looking at somebody who's being almost like a drone soldier moving forward and taking the hill rather than a police officer needing to enforce safety on a line. So I don't know if we misread it or not, but I was seeing it the same way. In in response to that, the there was a, a group of emergency response officers who decided to protest and not be a part of that unit anymore in response to that, those two involved officers being suspended. And that also did not make sense to me because, you know, what what's the difference between your perspective and theirs? And other than, I guess they're still with, you know, on the police force, but how, how do they not see it like you? How, how are none of them just shocked at a, 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 these officers almost killing an old man? So you have 57 that resigned from that team, but not the police department, which I thought, well, that's kind of chicken, quite frankly. You're not even standing up for the entire principle. You're just standing up for the fact that, okay, I won't be a part of this team anymore, but I'll still be a police officer. So that tells me a lot. The other part of that too, and I don't mean to disparage them, but I'm just thinking from my own ethical stance about being a police officer and standing up for what's right. When you look at them resigning, I would venture a guess that if you have 57, maybe five truly believe that they were right in pushing that guy to the ground. The, re- the remaining 52 are probably afraid of what happens if they go against the other five. That's the way that culture works. So they, they may have their integrity and their morals that are secreted away because they're so afraid of what might happen to them if they were to buck the system or to to speak out or to bend down and help the guy up. Um, That sense or fear of ostracization can be deadly. 
if you think about depending on somebody for your life and you've, you've spoken against them, they may not be there when you need them. And so you be, it, it's, it's horrible. You're on your own. So when you are thinking about, do I say what's, what's true and what's right, or do I go with the group? So I'm protected. That's a big decision. So in, and obviously we don't, you know, that was a, a, an example and we don't know how many officers really felt a specific way, but I want to stick with, stick with this um, hypothetical scenario. Why would five officers have that much power? If I were one of the 52 that thought that was wrong, why wouldn't I hear those five and say, well, that's, that's five. Here are 51 others that are still willing to stand next to me and that I'm willing to stand next to to protect and serve. Why do those five have so much power to unease the rest? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. That's the power of the group. The power of belonging to a group and that sense of, of belongingness is, you know, one of the highest needs that we have as a human being. And when you think about somebody having to decide, am I going to go against the group and be on my own? That's one. And then possibly losing my job. That's two, a job that I absolutely adore, even though this is a violation of my ethics and morals. So it's, it is that powerful. And it's not just police work. You see it in many groups. It's, it's, it's in corporate worlds. It's in our federal government. It's in the White House. Just a reminder for all of those tuning in now, my name's Jacob Sheckman and you're listening to What To Be. I'm speaking with Dr. Ginger Charles, a former police sergeant and current research psychologist focusing on the behavior and health of police officers. There was a Southern State police officer you knew who uh, had, as I think I understood, he sort of had to change his, his area and he was now sort of responsible for protecting and serving what he defined as a community of color. And that was something that he struggled with. And he said he, he anchored, he decided to anchor himself and try and understand that community that he was serving. I was curious what, if you know, what was it that made him choose to understand the community he was serving? Well, I think it's, you know, you, you tend to have a epiphany through uh, your career as a police officer. You certainly have these amazing experiences that, that can happen where you're challenged and then you meet the challenge in a much different way. And so for him, uh, it was important for him to really understand what he was doing because there's a sense of what's my meaning and purpose here? Why, why am I actually even doing this? So I can fight with this the entire time. I can hate these people and I can just do my job, but I have lost any kind of meaning and purpose, which is one of the other drives, uh, humanistic drives for us that is so very powerful. Why am I here and what am I doing? If I could find out a little bit about this person, that enriches my life so much. An example for today was the, the sheriff who took off his helmet, his baton, and his vest and chose to walk with the protesters, told them that he wanted to make it a parade rather than a protest. When he started talking about it on TV, I've never seen 
a, a brighter smile on anybody as he's explaining how that went for him. So that connection with the human being in front of him is reigniting uh, that passion and that love for actually what we're doing. It's ugly to think about all I'm going to do is beat people all day. What would you have to say to, to those who might see that and still be, see this, this sheriff and still be skeptical? You, you may have seen there was a picture of the, I think it was the Santa Cruz police chief kneeling next to the mayor. And when I first saw that, it was early in, in national protests. And I thought, wow, that's, that's great. And I still enjoy that picture, but now I've seen comments and skepticism and bringing out a point that apparently this police chief used to wear a Blue Lives Matter pin and had uh, in a different organization not allowed another officer to have his own pin of, of speaking out for Black Lives Matter. And now that was that was in his past. I don't I don't recall how recent, but now he's out here kneeling. What would you have to say to the skeptics that see the picture of the Santa Cruz police chief that see the, was it the Flint sheriff that, that had taken off his gear? Yes. Yeah, I think. Yeah. So, so what would you have to say to those skeptics? I think I'd say a couple things. The first one is, have you ever, have you, have you never done anything wrong? Cause if you've never done anything wrong, then maybe I can see your point, but we've all been, complete idiots or had a, a thought process that we that we looked at and said I can't think that way anymore so that would be my my first step and then the next one would be why why would that bother somebody so much that somebody is actually trying something trying to negotiate to calm to connect with a group of people who are who are suffering why would that bother you so much just to take a knee uh, quite frankly, when uh, when the whole taking a knee uh, protest happened, I I was for it. Uh, not that I I thought it was uh, denigrating the flag in in any sense. I I really I think what what really struck me was, you know, at first uh, now I'm blanking his name. Who's the Col Colin player? Kaepernick? Thank you. I'm sorry, Colin. So when you think about him actually sitting and not standing up for the national anthem. And then the military guy is saying, just take a knee. It, it represents something different. And he did. So here's Colin, who's, who sat there, and people found that offensive. He talks to a military man, and they make a decision to take a knee, which is brilliant. And then people are offended by that. And, and I'm, I'm just wondering why this is so offensive to somebody. Why does a symbol like a flag, rather than the human being that's in front of you saying, I'm hurting, or I'm recognizing those that are hurting, why does that bother you more? So those would be the two, two questions I would have. Good. I, I like that. I, I admit it made me, I know that, like I said, my first response, especially to the, the Santa Cruz police chief kneeling was, was hooray, right? Like that's, this is a good sign. And then I saw comments of still negativity toward this person. You know, don't forget about the bad things he's done. And I, and then I had to struggle with myself and I don't, I wasn't, I, I'm still, a, I, I want to always be skeptical of my own opinions, I suppose. But I, I, that was something that surprised me, I, I guess, as I didn't expect that I should be at that, at that exact moment. Um, so I, I think I want to now, one of, one of my goals with this was to, to help myself figure out, you know, what, what can I do? And, and anyone who hears this, what, what can we do 
as a as a unified community seeking change to make change happen. Uh, you, we've talked a little bit about what defunding the police might look like. You know what what are what are our options? What what does it look like if we lay play out options? And actually, since this is a, a career focused podcast, usually, what careers would be important for young people to start focusing on to fill in the gaps? So I think certainly law enforcement is going to be a gap where we're going to need good police officers. I don't believe you're going to see police officers go away, but those police officers are going to be different. They're going to be uh, peace officers. And so that's going to look differently. I hope that it looks differently. That's where I'm taking my students to have it look differently. The other areas that, that become defunded or possibly become defunded open opportunities within social work or within um, psychology fields, uh, some of the counseling fields or human service areas would be another uh, spot that, that people might look at to, to look at uh, truancy and um, child issues and addiction. Addiction and counseling would be another area or um, certainly child welfare and um, homelessness. You know, that's a huge area that we are going to need a great amount of work. So I would say getting educated, learning how to ask a question, learning how to say, I don't know, but I'm going to find the answer out. Or can you help me find the answer out? Really, when you look at the book, Police Pursuit of the Common Good, it really started with that one question. And I asked that question of Barry Graves, that, that uh, black young man who chose to, to let me interview him. When I asked him, how do you wanna be policed? And he said, from a distance. And I had no idea what that meant. And so we had a conversation about what does that mean? And it means not being on top of somebody an authoritarian and not letting them breathe. And then you hear Al Sharpton say, get your knee off our neck. So it's talking about giving some freedom, letting community actually live and function. We as police officers really should be trying to work our way out of a job and letting the community figure out how to take care of themselves. That doesn't mean it happens overnight. So there's plenty of work. There are plenty of careers to, to dive into. I think the one, the one concept that's really powerful is to say, how can I help? And then your doors open up as far as what you look at in order to help our world. How can someone who's not in law enforcement right now help bring about the change that we need? It, right now, it, it feels like law enforcement needs to change in some way. That the, the responses from police officers to whether it's to a, a protest or violence, their response has been violent, right? And it's... I don't get it. So what can we start doing? There's national attention. That's, that's, that's the beginning. What can we, what actions can we take to, to make some of this start happening? So I think taking a look at, at where you're, you're at, an individual is at in the world and, and saying, okay, where are, where are my areas that um, I, maybe I need some work and so that you know, and you're not going to get, you're not going to bump up against something that's going to trip you up, and then be able to go to 
community meetings or to police departments or to protests or to uh, other groups, Black Lives Matters or any other social groups that, that might need some help at this time and ask the question, how can I help? Uh, what does it look like for uh, like for me to go in and say, okay, I know I have the face of the problem. I Here's this white woman coming to you, but by God, I know I have solutions inside too. So how can I help? What's the first step I can do in order to help you? Uh, how do I support you? And just asking those questions. And then that opens up the conversation, being open to being guided. And then the final thing is calling it when it's not right. Like when you're seeing this racist behavior, just saying, just stop. This is unacceptable. I won't accept this and not letting it just pass because uh, we think, well, we'll just let them go on and say whatever they're going to say. No, it needs to end. Stop that right now. So uh, now there will certainly be a situation in which a, a, a listener might come across someone being racist and they have that opportunity to say something. Now we talked earlier about how uh, the effect of a group can can affect this person's response. So I guess I, I want to prepare someone for this, for that for that moment, for uh, for witnessing racism, being in a group that may intimidate them to respond against it. What can this person affect to face emotionally within themselves to have to overcome so that they actually do say something? I think, you know, the first thing, I think you're, you're kind of hitting on it. You want to make sure that you're safe in the, in the encounter. And certainly there are times when we're not safe, when we're approaching some kind of group situation there. But there are ways to, let's say you're on the bus or you're, um, you're seeing something on, on the corner of the street where you're walking by, where you can insert yourself and say, hey, would you walk with me for a while? And pulling that person that's being, being picked on by somebody who's making comments, pulling them away from that. So do, doing some kind of distraction gets the point across and keeps both of you safe too. But the bottom line is, is that from a gut perspective, you're going to have to figure out what's really going to make me safe. Now, let's go back to the, the George Floyd killing. We had several bystanders there begging for those officers to stop and they didn't intervene. Yet there was one brave young woman who filmed the whole thing. Now that's a hero. I thought about myself in that situation and standing on that street and watching those officers do this to George Floyd and thought, I couldn't just stand there. I, this is how I felt. I couldn't just stand there and watch this. And I knew fully that I was afraid as I said that. I have years of experience as a police officer I am white, and yet I was steer, still fearful of the fact that I was thinking about intervening if I was there, because I knew I would be on the ground. I would be. I could have been shot. I could have been arrested. There are many number of things that could have happened. I don't think it would have gone well. And so, when you when you start to criticize somebody for not intervening, you have to really remember what can you do in that particular situation? You do have to, to maintain safety for yourself too. So I want to make sure everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. Good. Thank you. I, I, I hope someone could use this advice. Just a reminder for all of those tuning in now, my name's Jacob Sheckman and you're listening to What To Be. I'm speaking with Dr. Ginger Charles, a former police sergeant and current research psychologist focusing on the behavior and health of police officers. In the Ahmad Arbery case, 
the the vi- videos of what happened went out. It, the case was how does this phrase passed up by two separate individuals who passed it up as far as I understand, because they didn't see anything wrong with what happened. Uh, my understanding is they recused themselves, meaning that they, they were too familiar with the, the defendants. And okay. so that's why they recused themselves and it went to the next uh, district attorney. Okay. That on, on surface, that to me, that, that makes sense. I don't want someone who's close to the atten- to the defendant. Right. defending them i just okay yeah. okay so that yeah that that makes me feel better because i like i said i had understood that these people said they didn't see anything i don't i don't want to i just don't want to put words in someone's mouth it's still disheartening and disgusting in terms of how long it took for any of this to happen well that's the other thing about the case is that you can recuse yourself and that can quickly go to another district attorney it didn't so this recusal process caused it to be buried for a very long period of time. And so that's another issue. So the recusal, probably a good thing, but that should immediately go to somebody else. There should never be a delay on that at all. So that was a problem. So what, was definitely what causes problem. that delay? Well, it certainly could be that we do have a relationship with the defendants. And so we're just going to bury this and see if it goes away. Um, you know, that can clearly happen. It could be that they're so busy that they couldn't get to it because the two that were free couldn't take the case. And so the, the person who can take the case is so buried and, and can't get to it. So it could be that as well. Um, I, I don't know what it is, but it never should have taken that long to come forward. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I find it very humorous that the reason it did come forward is because the defendant said, we're going to release the video because this is going to exonerate us. I was unaware of that. Yeah. That that's how the video came out. They put it out. I well, so that gives you the mindset. Yeah. Good 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 that the video's out to bring to bring them down, I suppose, but I just can't. It's so unbelievable. Yeah. Um in your writings, you you talked about how uh you wanted to thank those four or five officers who taught you how to be a good cop. And I wrote that down because it surprised me in that there were only four or five, was it that there were only four or five that you saw as real, true, good officers? Or was that those were just the four or five people who happened to be your mentors? Uh, you know, I really, I'd asked for, for mentors when I was in law enforcement and actually was told no, nobody would mentor me which I always found interesting, you know, when you look for, you know, you're going to a commander and say, Hey, would you mind mentoring me and literally have them say, no, I won't. And think, okay. So as far as the, the four or five that taught me how to be a good police officer, those, those were the ones that were truly invested in the fact that I become a good police officer. And then I felt I resonated with their training. It's not that I didn't see good police officers, uh, throughout my career. It's just those four or five really worked with me. And uh, some of the things that they did really demonstrated the, the core beliefs that I have as a police officer. Mm-hmm. So, Why did other police officers not want to mentor? Because of course I can understand maybe they're, for whatever reason, they just can't. They don't have the time or whatever. But it sounds like you've asked, you had asked several and many said no. So not having time is not a universal response. What, why did so many say, say no? 
I don't know. You know, Jacob, I can be kind of an odd duck. <laughs> um, you know, I do walk into this, this profession with advanced degrees in psychology, as well as being a police officer. And sometimes that's unnerving. You know, I, I had several officers that say, are you going to try and analyze us now? Like, no, I, I don't have any desire to analyze you. I just want to try and figure out how things work in the world. But by the end of my tour in investigations, I would have a line of them that would want to come in and just talk. And so, you know, I think there's some concern or worry about, you know, who I am and what, what, what my motivations are. Maybe there's jealousy. Maybe there's just, I don't feel like I have the time or I don't like you. I mean, there could be all kinds of things as far as why somebody wouldn't do that. I don't know. I never got an answer. Is that... Have you been able to to speculate or, or speculating is not very good, but maybe reflect, is this, is this happening on a large scale? Is this happening everywhere where mentorship is not common? Uh, mentorship is not common. I, I think that's one of the, certainly one of the solutions that I, that I really do believe in is that, that idea of mentoring. And I'm talking about different levels too. So uh, good police officers that are humanistic and interested in, in serving community partnering with a younger person in order to get them through the difficult times. There are many difficult times in law enforcement where you would think, why am I doing this? Or you have a bad day or you've done something wrong. Like, you know, you've written a ticket wrong and you got your rear end shoot off by the sergeant. So those things are really very helpful to have somebody there in your corner to say, I've been there. It'll be okay. Not to worry. Then I also think that there's a great way to mentor, say people coming out of prisons or jails. You know, why couldn't somebody coming from prison or jail mentor a younger cop about, you know, I just did time for forgery and uh, I might be able to teach a thing or two about how to make sure you can spot forgery. You know, maybe I can help you with that. Or that young or that police officer mentoring somebody to make sure that we get them a job and we, we help them out so that they get re, um, reintegrated into society. So that mentorship works in both, both directions. So it doesn't happen very often and it needs to happen. But what happens is, is that there's a lack of caring because the culture's so sick. So we don't have time, I don't wanna deal with it, it's too much trouble. And this is where we need to dig deep and say, I wanna invest in you. I mean, I'm busy. But I tell every one of my students, I am here, I will mentor you, whatever you need, but you have to let me know, you have to tell me. So that's my job is if I didn't get mentored, I need to make sure that I provide that for somebody else. And maybe that's the only reason I didn't get mentored. So I know what it feels like in order to say, I'm your mentor, what do you need? Mm-hmm. I guess for, for today, we'll, we'll end with what, what happens next? What, how do we... How do we move forward? There, I think protests are working. It looks like we have attention, and that's a good start. I think I saw in Minneapolis they're defunding the police. It looks like it might actually ha- happen. They're so- actually coming close to disbanding. They actually interviewed me on Tuesday. They're disbanding the police department, and they don't know what that looks like behind the scenes, like who's going to, who's going to answer the 911 call, but they're talking about totally taking the police department out and then re redoing it. And it has been done. Okay. It has been done. 
Yes, Camden, New Jersey. Uh, former Chief uh, Scott Thompson, when they had such a horrible crime rate there and a horrible relationship with community, he came on and he made everyone in that police department, including himself, reapply. Reapply for the job. Then he also had them live inside the city. So if you look at Minneapolis, 94% of their police officers do not live in the city. And so there's no buy-in. There's absolutely no buy-in to community. You're a transient coming in, affecting whatever law and order that you do, and then you leave. When I was a police officer, I knew it was important to be in that community that I served. It was very important. Uh, that's how I have buy-in. I want to change it because this is my world. So those are two things that that um, do affect change is, is really taking a look at what are we doing in our organization? Police officers do not get a free ride. Uh, deputies don't get a free ride anymore. Everyone needs to look at what am I doing? How am I affecting uh, the world by my little piece here? And what am I gonna do now? The protests work and they keep this alive and that's good. Um, if they stop, this would go underground again and it would come back very ugly the next time, even worse, in my opinion. Well, that's it then. Do not stop. All right, Dr. Charles. Well, um, thank you so much. I, I, so I can't express how much I appreciate you speaking with me. I have the, the personal gain I get from this and, and I really, really hope that I can uh, help be a voice of education to people out there. Right. Um, so yeah, thank well, Thank you. You're an often, uh, you're, you're, you're so clear and you're such a great spokesperson. So I do appreciate all your energy as you interview people. I, it's one of the, the first interview we did. It's one of the best ones that I've, that I've ever done. And that was due to you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> you're, I, I, I promise I'm not just saying this, your interview with me the first time was also my favorite and and so many of my peers. So yeah, it, it goes both ways. And of course, endless thank you to those of you who have made it this far as we have reached the end of this episode. I hope this conversation has provided you with the knowledge and courage you need to keep fighting that fight because it's not done. We are not done. I will be speaking with Dr. Charles again next week. So if you have any questions or comments you would like for us to discuss on this show, please reach out at what to be radio at gmail.com. I am not done listening, I am not done learning, and I am not done taking action. My name is Jacob Morales Shekman, and this is What to Be. Thank you.